what we will learn through all of these grassroots tokens and tokenization we have is that on the end, what does have value? What we put value to. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and on today's episode, I am speaking with Fabian Vogelsteller. Fabian is the co-founder and CTO of Luxo, which is an open blockchain ecosystem for the fashion and lifestyle industry. Fabian has been a mainstay in the Ethereum ecosystem, having previously worked at the Ethereum Foundation and having built foundational products and libraries such as the Mist Browser, Ethereum Wallet, and Web3.js. In 2015, he proposed the ERC-20 token standard, which became the foundation for the token economy boom. On this episode, Fabian talks about the importance of open standards like ERC-20, how to create digital ownership and identity, and how Luxo is bridging the digital and physical worlds to create real use cases and real adoption for decentralized technologies, starting with the ubiquitous world of fashion. Fabian is equally capable of taking deep dives on blockchain technology and outlining his vision for fantastic futures, as well as clearly communicating the hard work that remains to make those futures into a reality. And he does all of that in this conversation, which is one of my favorites. So without any further introduction, here is Fabian Vogelsteller. Fabian, welcome to this episode of Decentralize This. I'm so happy you're joining me, man. Yeah, I'm happy too to be here. So we start every episode the same way. Can you just tell me quickly, personally, professionally, who is Fabian Vogelsteller? Yeah, so um, I'm one of the Ethereum developers who kind of like uh, worked and built a lot of things in the Ethereum space uh, and worked inside the Ethereum Foundation in the last four years. Um, so I always have this quick pitch because I like have to introduce myself so often. Um, so I basically I built the the Mist browser, the first decentralized web browser. Um, joined the Ethereum Foundation January 15 and built the Mist browser there initially. Uh, built the Ethereum wallet. This was the official wallet coming from the Ethereum Foundation. It basically was the first wallet that allowed people to interact with smart contracts. Um, worked on the RPC API actually a lot. Um, I think I kind of made it more developer friendly. <laughs> Had to you know bargain a lot between the Go Ethereum and the C++ team to get get this right. Um, I worked on Web3.js, the JavaScript library, which is probably the most used JavaScript library uh, in the Ethereum space. That's probably where a lot of people know me from. And um, the people who are not developers, they know me because I proposed the ERC20 token standard in November 2015, which we all know just made everybody go crazy. And uh, it just shows how beautiful and important standards are because we can all agree to basic you know interaction sets and um i propose also the erc 7 to 5 uh standard which is basically a proxy account standard which in my opinion will have a very important role to play in the near future because it will make accounts verifiable and manageable and that's kind of like a key feature to make blockchain first better usable and easier usable so improve the ux and second make accounts 
not just random string numbers, but being something you can identify. Uh, or maybe even ha having a verified account or something like this if you want to interact with ICOs or whatever else. So I think this is a key piece and and hope or actually have the feeling that it will take off very big time the next coming months and years. I'm excited. I'm 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 excited for that future. I'm excited for this conversation because in particular we focus on this podcast on adoption. And it sounds like, you know, for the past few years you've been thinking very hard, you know, about what it really takes to get to adoption. Some of that is you know, the, the really fun stuff, the use cases like what you're currently working on at Luxo, um, where, where it's more, uh, you know, a very distinct use case for fashion in particular. Um, but you also, of course, you know, it, what, what really drives adoption can be standards, right? It's, it's maybe not as glamorous, um, but it's hugely impactful. And when it becomes like this crazy movement, like the what happened with ICOs, you know, these things sort of take on a life of their own and... Uh, yeah, that's that's just as critical as anything else is being able to really lay that groundwork. So, I think we'll start there. You know, let, let's start a little bit with these standards. You know, from ERC twenties now to ERC seven twenty fives, and then I want to ask you about Luxo in particular and, and how this is all coming together for you now, and and why this is the right time to get excited about a project like that. Uh, so let's let's start with ERC twenties because I I work uh, in my day job right for Enigma. Enigma is uh, an ERC twenty token, ENG. I love ERC twenties. Uh, it's pretty phenomenal. So did you? Um, maybe I'll start with a. <laughs> I don't know if this is the easiest or the hardest question. How much of this did you foresee when you were first proposing this uh, back in I think you know twenty fifteen? How much of this uh, explosion? Uh, did you foresee? Um, actually, I didn't foresee it at all. I mean, the moment when I proposed this, I took the, the simple draft uh, Vitalik made in, in the wiki page, changed it up, wrote a proper specification, created issue number 20, and that became ERC20. Um, at the time, I thought people will make community tokens, you know, some fun tokens, play a little around, and it would be more fun thing. Uh, when they started to all like wanting to raise money with it and doing it for their project, I thought like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> like, that's just weird. Um, but, uh, I think actually what I initially had in mind for tokens will actually will happen now and in the coming years. So tokens moving more towards community tokens, towards actually to, uh, reputational tokens, towards non-monetary tokens, because honestly, this is the more interesting use case. And just raising money around the project. Um, but yeah, at the time, I didn't foresee it coming, having such an big impact. Um, but I learned a lot about how, how standardization works, why standards are successful, and in the first place, that they are extremely important, that they are the key of why uh, any kind of uh, smart contract-based blockchain or basically anything on the internet, but especially on a blockchain where you have smart contracts, talking to each other and, and these endless pop, uh, possibilities of interoperability, you need standards because otherwise this is just a mess. You know, everybody does whatever they want. And even though you're on the same blockchain, you're not able to communicate. So standards are key. And one of the keys to success for standards is simplicity, generality, and um, being as flexible as possible to be a, a step stone, a basic step stone for other things to evolve on top. If a standard is too, too specific, tries to uh, fulfill too many things at the same time, 
it's not going to be adopted because it's it's just complicated and and all of these things. And ERC seven to five, which um, I proposed actually more than a year ago now. Uh, initially, when I proposed it, um, you know, I thought, okay, you know, people talk about identity and all of these things, and like nobody's really coming forward with a standard. And I have I participated in a workshop uh, with BCG a few years back where I thought, where we talked about digital identity on the blockchain, you know, that made me think about it because, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I thought, okay, no idea, let's think. <laughs> and I just came up with this basic idea of ESC 7 to 5, which on the end, I thought, okay, why is nobody proposing that? You know, why, why there's no standard, why there's no discussion about that? And so I felt the urge that I have to now propose this. Uh, in fact, I thought Uport will, uh, Uport never really did, took the job and there are many reasons for that because they on the end moved towards off-chain solution in terms of privacy and all the other reasons um, and that's probably okay but um, ESO 75 took off in the sense that everybody started to now pay attention to identity on the blockchain and the 75 proposal was a very concrete one and even though it was not perfect at the time because it was way too much of a monster of complexity it showed everybody clearly of what exactly identity on-chain can look like. So you have the key management part, you know, and ideally you separate the key you interact with from the key you manage your identity with. And you have the um, execution part, so means your identity can act on-chain with other smart contracts. And you have the claims or the attestation part. So you can attach information to your identity. Other people can issue claims and everybody else can check, okay, who issued a claim and do we trust them? If I trust them, yeah, then, then he's fine or not. So it showed the core components and it showed them all working nicely together. And I think this is what got the whole conversation started and the reason why we have an ERC-75 alliance and all of these things. Let's talk about that because, again, it's it's not just about designing the right standard. It's about driving adoption of that standard. So what what have you learned you know, from the time working on ERC-20 and then now with ERC-725? What what have you learned that is helping you sort of develop these alliances and drive adoption for the standards that you're helping create? And the, the, the alliance by, came by itself because there are projects interested in identity. I personally have no identity business. I mean, personally, I like, you know, think it's a very awesome idea. We should talk about it, but I don't have any business in that, which basically makes me the perfect person to propose it. <laughs> <laughs> um the, the interesting thing is when it comes to the alliance and so on, um, it came up from the origin protocol. They were the one who initiating it and they wanted to kind of like a, get a uh, get people to agree on, hey, yes, we should use it. The intro, most interesting learning I got out of all of this is that I thought, you know, I get, make this standard, I put it out there and people will improve on it because they all have businesses in this direction and you know, they're working on it on a daily basis. They do have time for that. You know, they will evolve it. The truth is, Nobody does a fucking thing <laughs> to, to say the hard. People always wait for a champion to tell them what to do, which is very odd because you would expect that somebody steps up and says, hey, this is how it should be done and this is improvement and so on. But they rather wait for the person who actually initiated it initially to tell them what to do. It's kind of like a bit obedient followership like uh, we have seen with like uh, big uh, <laughs> presidents or, or dictators in the past. It's kind of funny to see that in such a decentralized community where you expect that people would just, um, you know, 
come up and find consensus. On the end, they're always in the champion. And that's probably okay because people want to look at to, towards somebody who tells them what to do. So I kind of, there was actually Taylor Asaka. I think his name is Asaka. He came up with a proposal. What he did is he collected a lot of different uh, identity proposals uh, and he basically figured out, okay, what could we improve? And I had a talk with them, uh, with him, and we kind of like went over ESC 75 and how we can improve it. And we came up together with the ERC-75 version 2, which is the perfect essence of what ERC-75 should have been in the first place. But at the same time, ERC-75 version 2 wouldn't probably be possible without ERC-75 initially, because initially it showed the broad picture. It showed all the things which were possible. And now the version 2 is the totally condensed down version with the most flexibility, the most simplicity, but it combines exactly all of the functionality of the original vision. And on the end, that is kind of like what uh, we now changed to change the ES75 standard to, to this new version. And I'm very confident that this will be adopted because it makes total sense and it solves a lot of problems. And uh, I'm very happy to actually see interfaces and things like being built, which will be able to interact with this. I personally think that ESC 75 version 2 as it is might be even more important than ESC 20 because it enables a lot more things and it makes on-chain interaction a lot better than it is today where everybody's dealing with keys, you know, massive of keys and wallets you don't want to lose. <laughs> well, let's then let's talk about that because it sounds like this is – I was going to ask, you know, what are the biggest problems really that are being solved? Uh, and it sounds like, you know, part of this – is just usability, right? But like, what what do you think this is? Um, like, rather than trying to say exactly what people are going to use it for, because in the case of ERC twenties, you would have been wrong, uh, and that's fine because that's how people are. You don't really know what they're going to do with it once you get it in the wild. But what what at least are the problems that you that you think the lowest hanging fruit that like this seems like yeah. you're very confident this is a solution for? So there actually is a lot. I mean, the main two core problems we have on chain is one. Everything is based on keys. It means you lose keys, you lose your stuff. You have to back them up and you have to have this very complex, uh, you know, the UX of the most wallet is, hey, please write down 12 words and then go figure, you know, and, and people just want to open an app <laughs> and they have to go down, write stuff. Who has a pen and paper with them all the time? Like nobody, you know. So what you do is you take the screenshots, you know. Um, the point is UX based on keys itself is bad, especially when these keys are the important things, you know, when they are the thing you store your stuff on. And the second problem is if you're acting on chain, you're an address. Uh, you can attach no information to this address. Um, you can maybe, you know, gain reputation over time. You say, hey, that's my address, and you start using this everywhere. But so far, there were some, some attempts to make addresses uh, identifiable, like one name. I think there was one at some point, or uh, ENS, for example, is an attempt to basically say, hey, look, this ENS is referencing this address, which kind of is recognizable. But 7 to 5 in its basic form works the following way. You have a smart contract that has, has a very simple byte 32 by 32 key value store. You simply have a smart contract which has a key value store, which in fact is exactly what the core smart contract under the hood has itself too. It says storage slots, and it's a smart contract with an address. Then the uh, key value or the key zero x x zero x zero zero zero, so key zero, 
is the owner of this uh, proxy account. So you have a smart contract. The smart contract can own things. It can, could hold tokens, could hold NFTs, could hold anything. And it has an owner. And the owner is the only one who is able to set any kind of data on the smart contract. And the only one who can execute through the execute function to interact with any kind of other smart contract. So this proxy account is able to act with other or talk to other smart contracts and only the owner is able to do so. The beauty is if you have an owner, this owner can be a key, but this owner can also be another smart contract, which has whatever complex logic itself. So now we can have initially a simple address or a simple uh, a key managing this uh, identity, but you can later replace it with a smart contract where you now have like 10 keys and one is direct backup via email and the other one is like your two friends you really trust. Or you have whatever other custom logic where something is locked over time and only a certain key is released when certain actions are triggered. You can make up whatever rules you want. At the same time, this key manager is now also able to accept transactions from anybody, given the fact that it contains a signature with one of your keys. This now enables relay transactions, meaning somebody else can pay for your gas to interact with your account. So on the end, for everybody else on chain, the only one interacting is that smart contract. However, you know, you you trigger any kind of action uh, on your identity or on your proxy account doesn't even matter the other smart contracts don't have to care can be as complex or as simple can be a relay transaction can be a simple private key can be a whatever complex permission model uh, with multiple confirmations the only thing the other smart contracts care about a hey, proxy x talk to me the other part of ESS 7 to 5 is and that's really the simple owner of this proxy other part is that you now have a key value store where both are by 32 so the current uh, proposal is that if you want to have any kind of information attached to it, give it a name like claims seven to eight or seven seven eighty claims registry or you know even you could say uh, IPFS avatar picture and then hash this name. The hash of this name is now the new key value, and people can agree to whatever names they want. And then inside the bytes thirty two value, you could put whatever you could put a hash of something. You could put a um, another address which points to another smart contract, for example, to a claim registry, to a 780 claim registry, or even to a 735 claim registry, or even to whatever reputation system people come up with in the future. And uh, it could even like contain directly written out text, or it could contain whatever you want to put in there. And this gives us an unlimitedly flexible key value store where anything can be put into, and we just have to agree to what we think should make, you know, should be in there and what we want to be standardizing. And then you have two things. You have an account which can have any kind of information attached to it, be it claims which are off-chain, be it claims which are on-chain, be it a profile picture, uh, be it whatever you want to attach to your account, be it you know, your social reputation system or whatever, and it can own itself, tokens, coins, NFTs, Ether, whatever. And this account is manageable. So you have a verifiable, manageable account where you don't have to, if you lose your keys or if you replace one of your keys, you lose all of your stuff and your reputation is gone because this key was one in one of your phones. Now we have a persistent account you can always use over time, uh, which is obviously a public persona of yours or maybe an anonymous 
public persona of yours, but you can change the way you manage that account from very simple to very complex to time-based to whatever logic any kind of smart contract allows over time. So you can carry that kind of identity a long way, losing nothing because you can simply replace whatever schemas uh, you verify your account with. And that can even be that in the future you have a smart contract who can verify uh, quantum computer safe signatures and then you have a quantum computer safe ES75 proxy account. I mean, it, it, it definitely sounds to me uh, like the possibilities are endless. And, and what I think is so appealing about all of this, right, is that you've described this in such a way that like a developer is going to see the possibilities. They're going to want to, you know, start extending this. They're going to join the alliance or however they're going to do it. You know, they're, they're going to be building with their own solutions. Maybe you don't have the same skin in the game. You're not working on any of these businesses that require the standard, but these these people are and they're going to be excited to extend it and use it. And then, you know, the fact that you can then condense that down to, so what's the value to the end user? There's only so many end users right now of decentralized technologies. And I think you're describing the one thing that's sort of a universal pain point, right? When you, when you've talked about this in terms of like, why does it make sense still that we're, that we're dealing with these like very long strings of alphanumeric characters and, and that we're, you know, dealing with these weird seed phrases and things like that. Like if it doesn't make sense that millions of people are going to be interacting with decentralized technologies these way, you know, like some people are saying this will all be abstracted away, but maybe not, you know, something has to happen in between. Something has to happen in between like the, the things that only a few people are going to have the patience for and where it actually all gets like abstracted into the background. There's there have to be these these middle steps. And I think what you're describing here and maybe ERC20s were sort of the same way. It's like the stepping stones between here and there. You know, how, how are we ever going to bridge the gap between the adoption we see today and then millions of people coming into the space using these technologies, building things? I mean, the benefit now is that basically you can have whatever complex or simple logic attached to it. So it means you can say you start an application inside your application. You have, it generates a key. You don't even know there's a key that gives you immediately account. The moment when you buy something or receive something or whatever, it can actually deploy this proxy account for you, making your key and your app the owner. In this moment, it can also deploy some kind of key management system where the second key is generated, which is sent via email, even in plain text. And now you lose the application, you just go back to your email and you regain whole access. I mean, we are having email recovery schemes on every single account in the world. So we are already in that kind of security level. You know, you have access to an email, you can reset any account. So the kind of like... Uh, same security level we are in. So the moment when you actually start to gain real, real value, you can ask people to do add the password, you know, or uh, add whatever you know, family backup or social backup system, or you know, uh, appoint a trusted person, or um, download. Uh, actually, write down twelve words. These things can then come later when there's real value accumulated. But you can have a very simple backup possibility by saying, "Hey, give me your email. I will send you your key." And then you can replace the email key with whatever other system. And then you have complex stuff. And so you can go from extremely simple to extremely complex. And the user doesn't even need to know. He just knows. Or you can say, here, take your second device and authenticate your second device as a two-factor authentication. And then you have a simple two-factor authentication scheme, which now can interact with your ES75 proxy account. 
So it's very exciting. And now now all I can do, listen to you describe this, is think about all the ways in which somebody is going to pervert whatever vision you have for this. Or not even pervert, but just like, you know, all the ways that we were wrong about how ERC-20s might have been used. I'm trying to think now, like real time, like what are all the ways that people are going to use these in unforeseen ways um, where they're <laughs> where it's going to drive yet another sort of like speculative fervor. You know, there's all some, somebody always finds a way. Like even if you think that ERC twenties would be strictly reputational, people have a tendency to put values on on things, even if they seem to be strictly reputational, even if they're not really uh, supposed to be transferable. They this seems to be a very human impulse. This will totally happen. And, and on the end, you know, what we will learn through all of these grassroots tokens and tokenization we have is that on the end, what does have value? What we put value to. Mm-hmm. If a community gives value to something like shells in the past or stones in the past, that is, this is what will have value. There is nothing which has intrinsic value. This is a totally absurd idea to think that something has an intrinsic value. I mean, sure, I can eat something or not, you know, that that could give it an intrinsic value. But looking at the value of food compared to gold, yeah. uh, the food is worth like nothing. While girl, gold has total almost no usage. I mean, except like in, in, in some electronics, nobody can do by himself. Uh, gold is t- technically nice, beautiful, but useless. But we have given it a lot of value. Paper money is even more funny if you look at it. No, it is. But but I guess the reason for that, or at least pieces of the reason for that, and something that's going to let us now start talking a little bit about Luxo, might be this idea of scarcity. And the idea that, you know, we, at least we, we think of gold as a scarce resource and it, we, you know, we continually produce food. We certainly continually produce government-backed fiat, you know, so there's this element of dilution there. I want to talk with you now, since we've gotten into you know ERC-20s and ERC-725s, let's talk about what you're trying to do with Luxo because a, a piece of that, at least based on my understanding of it, is around this idea of scarcity in a digital world and creating digital lives. I think this is now a direct quote, but creating a digital life for real life products. What is What does that mean? Because so, we're, we're going to keep poking at this idea that you know, what, what is inherently valuable, right? What do people assign value to? How do we assign value to digital goods, which previously were infinitely replicable with no marginal cost of production? So, so what's happening with Luxo? Is this changing? Yeah, I mean, what I, what I meant initially is basically that we are redefining or actually we start to explore really what value is. And value is on the end only what the community gives it. And if we like something and we give it an artificial uh, limit like Bitcoin, then this can have value. I mean, Bitcoin has a lot of value and there's actually no technical reason why this should be 21 million coins. could be also a trillion or it could be unlimited. But it's a consensus in the community that it's good that it's this amount and that's why we all want it too. Um, Luxo itself is a concept which came out of uh, basically me looking at the blockchain space itself and seeing, okay, where is this going? What is the next step? And uh, having lived through Ethereum and uh, Bitcoin and basically being part of the growth of this network from the start, uh, for me, it's clearly apparent that the next logical step for mainstream adoption in blockchain has to be networks build it, built around specific verticals or communities or so-called domain-specific networks. This will be the next wave and trend of networks between special purpose networks and domain specific networks. This means you make a network 
specifically for a specific community that has a certain set of use cases or, and has a certain interest, a certain relation, a certain common uh, mindset. And this kind of community has already a natural tendency to stick together as we have, we see this in the decentralized community. But by creating your network, you first have the ability to have production use cases because you're not sharing everything with the whole world, which is exactly what keeps, gives us or brings us in this uh, scalability issues. But you're within a certain peer group while you already have the benefits of uh, you know, wanting to interact with these people, wanting to build uh, interoperability on compatible use cases or even have similar interests. So whatever things you build there would benefit a lot of people with the same interests. So the reason for Luxo is to create a uh, blockchain around the fashion and lifestyle community, which in fact is the, the 1 billion people on Instagram. You know, if you think about who's the most social active crowd in the world, it's actually the people on Instagram as well as Twitter, but mainly actually the people who are very socially active, uh, sharing images and all of these things. And this is kind of like the community which Luxo is meant for. This is a non-techy community. This is a community which doesn't care about much how uh, blockchain, the engine works, but it would care very much about owning things, being able to represent things, or having some kind of gamification around status that is only achievable if you really do certain things. So the whole gamification of life, you know, what's, which is what, you know, social media technically is, can be done in blockchain yeah, where the rules are clear for everybody and they're clearly achievable only when you do whatever, you know, spend a certain amount of time in, in a place or go to certain events or have certain tokens of, you know, certain communities or following a specific trend or whatever. And the whole reason for Luxo is to kind of create this network and this unlimited pos uh, amount of possibilities that can exist within uh, this kind of vertical uh, to create this kind of network for that kind of use cases. And we initially will come up with three use cases built in an application. And the first one you already mentioned, which is the authentication of physical items, meaning for chips and handbags, you are in, in for example, expensive watches or whatnot. Uh, you now can own these items digitally. First, if you go to a secondhand market or a secondary market and you buy them, you know you're buying a real one. At the same time, you can digitally own them. Uh, and this kind of creates a complete new way of how you can interact from a brand perspective to your customer, how your customer can interact with, its, with uh, the community, because you have now something which is representational and it's kind of like a more clear collectible than purely a physical item. Um, at the same time, if you think about this, you know, that requires all of these big brands and all of the current players who have value in the space to, to catch on to this. And as we know, they are slow moving like everybody, every larger company in the space. And that probably will be one of the last ones to adopt. But who will adopt is young people, Generation C, uh, people who are already extremely interactive, social even the gaming community who are totally into digital stuff. And we have actually uh, have a digital fashion house coming to us called the Fabricant. And they are purely digital fashion house, meaning producing purely digital fashion items. And that really brought uh, the, the second use case. And uh, we, we kind of like could immediately say that is the thing, you know? And uh, the point here is that 
you are able to buy digital scarce clothes. It's kind of like CryptoKitties 2.0, which you're able to wear using your phone's camera, using AR, and uh, which are actually made by designers. So they're designer clothes, but you can only wear them digitally. This means now you could share them on Instagram as a picture, and other people are interested in these kind of collectibles as well. But a Fortnite or whatever other game could come along and say, hey, we are accepting now the NFTs built on Luxor as well in our game. So suddenly able to wear your digital Adidas sneakers or your whatever uh, new designer clothes from new upcoming digital brands in these games. And this is uh, something which we already see, you know, look at Fortnite making $2.4 billion in profits purely selling digital clothes and dance moves. Uh, <laughs> actually, Team Fortress made $7 billion in purely hats and clothes, whatever avatars they have. Um, though the whole like gaming economy is, is ready for that. Um, the Carlings Group, which is actually a fashion brand itself, they made a purely digital collection where you had to send in the picture. They mapped the 3D clothes you bought from them uh, on your picture manually. And they had such a storm of interest that they basically sold out because they couldn't really fulfill the demand uh, of, of <laughs> because of slavery, basically making people uh, <laughs> map clothes on people. You have to do this using AR and, and machine learning. Um, but it was a trial for them and it had a huge interest. And because we are in this sharing world where people share pictures all the time, in the moment when you are sharing an image of somebody wearing virtual clothes, that's something you want to have immediately too. And uh, if it costs you almost nothing, at the same time you are buying limited or digital scarcity, and this is ownable and, and transferable, tradable, then whatever you buy for 20 bucks right now could have historical value, you know, and it might be worth like a 20,000 bucks at some point. And you could maybe even wear that in your game. And at some point you can even wear it in VR, in your social VR environment. And you're one of the only ones wearing it because there's only a hundred existing and you just got one of the first ever existing. So there's like so many angles to why these kind of things become interesting. And uh, we have seen that with CryptoKitties where the usage is basically almost zero. <laughs> you get an image you know you can breed your image so um so this is one aspect but a, another a very important aspect is actually tokenization of communities and this is similar to what i spoke about uh, initially what i actually was my first intent when i thought about esc20 and why this, this standard or how this standard will be used um if people are able to simply create tokens around their persona or purely if you have a you know a a reputation or you're an influencer or even you're a musician or whatever, if you create a token and you spread that to your followers, you have a weighted community. You have now a community which has different amount of token based on wherever they got them from. You know, maybe they did some challenges or they got them by participating somewhere, or maybe they can be even bought in the open market, or maybe there is a token created, a, bond, a token bond, a bonding curve attached to a smart contract which issues this token and increases the price, then you have a, have a community where you know whoever has the most token is really believer in you. Means you give a concert, uh, when you get free stuff as an influencer, or if you get like a, a m make money because of whatever you know PR action as an influencer you did, or if you are a fashion brand yourself, or if you are a famous designer and you want to give back to your group, to your fan, uh, to your community and your fan fan community. Now you have a direct access. 
and this access exists outside of any kind of network, outside of any kind of social uh, centralized system. This is your real connection. And, um, you know, w once you see community tokens being created around people and people easily do that, then you, you suddenly have value in that because now you can say as a brand, oh, look, there's so many Kardashian coins and they all like they're super hype about this and this. So let's give them a different discount or let's only invite these people this to, to our special event or whatever. Yeah, it goes it goes a little bit beyond the the idea of the, the club membership, right? Like just the in and out, like a Boolean kind of thing. Like what you're you're introducing a more sort of granular um or intricate approach. It's unlimited on the end what will happen. I mean, there's only so and so many things I can think of, but because we are basically starting the network. Right. all of these possibilities we don't have to think about everything we can come up with basic use cases which make it apparent for uh, end users and for startups to to see hey, that is cool i want to do that too and on the end there will be an explosion of people innovating on top of this and wherever this will lead to i don't know i mean if people on the end you know use this as their their door access or you know use this as as actually you create now the kardashian coin versus kanye west coin or the chanel token versus the adidas coin i mean i don't know what will on the end be the play uh it's technically unlimited what these uses will be uh, if they are determining your reputation uh or you know you basically can be automated assigned to a trend community based on the amounts of tokens you have uh, look at Dogecoin, you know, Dogecoin. What, what is the real representation of Dogecoin? It's a pure subscription to a meme. And still there was a billion dollar blockchain at some point, uh, which is kind of like in itself uh, somehow an absurd fact. But it is a fact. <laughs> but it's a fact, exactly. I, so everything everything you're saying is, is super fascinating to me. Just just hearing you talk about it and hearing the passion for it and understanding that like once you kind of put it out there, it's totally out of your control. I know a little bit about you know everything that you're describing. I, I used to work at Snapchat. I I it was a user base of all Generation Z of of people who enjoy social sharing and are consistently and constantly socially connected. It's interesting that we started off by talking about ERC-725s and identity and you saying that you don't have as much skin in the game when it comes to identity. Um, and then everything that you're describing to me with Luxo and, and, and all the possibilities, everything you're describing has to do with identity in a way because this is how we identify ourselves by our social status or, or by our standing in communities or, you know, like – this is, or what we wear, right? You know, even if it's a purely digital representation of ourselves and you're talking about dressing it, you know, that is a, an extension of our identity. And these days, our digital identity is very much the same as our real world identity. The way we live our life online becomes more important to our earning power or our social status than maybe how we interact with people in the physical world. Absolutely. I mean, so uh, the answer to this is yet, right? I don't have any kind of identity business currently, and I didn't have in the past. But these, I mean, ERC-725 will play an extremely crucial role on the Luxo network, because this is like one of first, it makes the UX and the usability very easy, like brain dead simple. You don't have to care about tokens because you're basically just using an app. You know, you will realize that there's a token later on. In the moment when you want to transfer, uh, I mean, or you will realize that there's a blockchain in the first place later on in the moment when you are able to transfer it out of our app into any kind of other app or to an exchange. This is when it will make click for people. Um, 
but at the same time, ESG 75 as a reputational public identity, as an identity for a company, for example, or even as the identity for the objects itself, will play an extremely crucial role. And uh, in combination with 7 to 1, the NFT standard, maybe an improved version on that, this is what you want to have. You want to have an uh, identifiable object where all kind of information can be attached to it. And, you know, most things on the chain are just addresses. No, for sure. But this is all making sense now if I, if I kind of take a step back and look at the whole story here, which is I, I think you're creating value by creating a standard because something that a Facebook or a Snapchat would try to do if they could – and Snapchat to an extent did because they introduced um, – they bought and then introduced into their application Bitmoji and Bitmoji was a digital representation of, of yourself or it was supposed to be. And if you use any application on the Snapchat network, you have a Bitmoji, you had access to your Bitmoji's goods, you could buy clothing in the Bitmoji store. This was all something they tried to do, but it was within the context of a single app ecosystem. And it didn't become any sort of decentralized standard. These, I think what you're saying is that if we can create a standard and these digital goods, the, the, this, digital, this digital ownership and digital identity is transferable from platform to platform. You know, however we assign, you know, ownership of that identity or like that's that's where the value actually gets created. That's how you create value is having something that the whole world can, you know, observe, believe in, et cetera. It becomes a a universal narrative around digital identity. Yes. And it, it is actually endlessly extensible. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, it's not about like there's a fixed set of five things you can do with it. It's, you know, I mean, 75 itself, it's an unlimited amount of what you could add to there. And we just have to come up with a name of a key and whatever you put into the value store and there you have something new attached to it. Um, and interesting enough, like when you're talking about this, this bit, whatever they called, you know, I never knew about that. I never know about this before. Somebody showed me actually like that you can have your little figure and then your little figure can sleep and stuff like this. <laughs> I didn't, didn't know about that before, you know, and, uh, uh, many of the things are actually just starting to discover um, because I can see it. You know, I spend myself a lot of time in VR. I can see kind of the future we are going into. People will spend a lot of time in virtual reality. This will be totally the hangout space. People will live in in massive multiplayer, stateful environments. Uh, they will live in there. So it's stuff will go crazy. And this all like needs a blockchain. And this all needs things you can take with yourself, which are ex- living outside of any of those places. They live outside and while living also obviously in those places. Um, but I didn't know, for example, about this bit bit something you call bit it. Bitmoji, yeah. And, and, and this is kind of, you know, very much that angle. Um, but yeah, blockchain gives a complete different independence to these things. And that's kind of what is key to it and it gives a memory to these things i mean i guess that's part of it is that you know you rely on whoever maintains bitmoji to maintain you know your bitmoji like whatever's been bought like if the company goes out of business what happens to your identity like that shouldn't be a possibility in the world that you're describing so when you say something like stateful to me that has a lot of emotional resonance you know the idea that i could disconnect from this world and reconnect to this world and it would still remember who i was uh, and, and that you can step in and out of these sort of virtual identities and, and not worry that the memory of that identity will be erased when you yourself are not currently embodying that identity. Like it's it's a mind it's a mind fuck. 
I guess, but maybe not to Generation Z because I think this is actually native to that generation. They're very used to managing digital identities and living their lives uh, you know, in a very sort of uh, compartmentalized way. And I, I don't know if it's healthy or not. Uh, but I do know that they're doing it. I got, I've got younger brothers, and I watch it happen. Yeah, yeah. I have a son which is eight, so I see exactly the same. Uh, I mean, he's totally into Fortnite, and uh, it was just also interesting for me to see this. Um, maybe one note towards the digital identities, because there's a lot of uh, concern towards privacy and all of the things. Of course, I think there's a very big importance on public identities, public personas, public or companies or anything public. Um, there is an interest for people to have a place where others can go and look you up or look something up about you or even look, just look at one of the personas you created, be it your Bitmoji or whatever. Um, there's a very big, important use for that. While obviously there is a lot of identity use cases and your real world identity, you might not want to connect to, 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 to these kind of things directly. You probably will not put your health data on the blockchain. You will not probably put any kind of passport data on your blockchain, but you will create avatars, avatars you interact with in the public, which are living on chain and they are out there, you know, and they obviously cannot be erased being on chain. So they are just part of one of your personalities and it's up to you of how much you connect it to yourself and it's up to you of how much you expose yourself using these kind of avatars. Um, but yeah, there is a big difference between like an on-chain public identity and something you actually rather have in your decentralized DID-based uh, U-Port-like uh, off-chain identities where you really share only things on a request or peer-to-peer -peer basis. But there is use for both of them and they very often get mixed up, you know. They think like, oh, yeah, blockchain solves the identity problem. I mean, it doesn't actually. It actually creates a lot of privacy issues. But for certain use cases, it's extremely important. Be, if you are a company, for example, you want to have a recognizable address. Everybody knows that this is you or this, this address represents you. Whenever you see this address acting, you know it's the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, or, you know, it's whatever, you know, Chanel or, you know, whoever. It's like another firm's person. If this person is... is attaching an attestation in some form be it over smart contracts or being over a signature you know it comes from them these kind of use cases they require public accessible identities which are not peer-to-peer -peer basis because you cannot every, not everybody can just ask chanel all the time hey, can you please tell me if you are you <laughs> that would be just feasible um so there's this kind of like different angles to identity as well. And this has to be explored over time with these kind of use cases. And I think the playful use cases, the game-like use cases, the digital fashion space use cases, which by the way, will create a whole new ecosystem, a whole new economy in the fashion space itself. This is fascinating to see of how this will evolve. And that's kind of like the future we are creating. I mean, we could go on for hours, especially on the privacy angle, because it's it's basically what we think about all day, at least with Enigma, is how we can create better kinds or at least different kinds of identity solutions that can preserve data privacy without, you know, requiring somebody to constantly attest to their identity. You know, there's there's ways, right? And and there's good ways and there's bad ways. But what I want to ask you about, because we're approaching the end of our conversation, and uh, I just want to take it back to what's always the core of this here, which is what does it take to make this like really happen? You know, 
creating standards was one thing. Having a clear vision for a particular vertical is another. You know, let's look at the next year of Luxo. You know, like you, you are responsible, you know, for creating a, a roadmap for what you're trying to do. And you have to prioritize and you have to resource the right things so that this thing scales well into the future. So, like, what is the priority that you have, at least for, let's say, the next year? And then maybe, you know, when you're looking a decade out, like, what, but what's in the immediate future for you that you think is the most important thing you can be doing? Or what's maybe the most important thing you can be learning to make sure that this stuff gets into people's hands and that it's actually being adopted, extended, et cetera? So the key here is to actually set, create the, the ecosystem and set the very basic parameters for the ecosystem right. And we have, I think, done this well in form of how we do set our token distribution, where there is a part the public can sell, uh, can buy in an ICO later this year. There is a part which goes to private sale we are running currently. And there's a big part which we actually keep for later, which we sell then to brands, which we uh, give as grants to startups and which we um, also use for paying for transaction fees in our own application and even into some startups applications in order to make this kind of like seamless onboarding. If people have to buy Lux in order to interact with Luxo Network, that's just the worst experience possible. If you think about today, if you're downloading an application, are you like getting asked, like, please give us a euro so we can spend our server costs and then you can open the app? <laughs> like, no, you're just uh, using an app and the, the startup is paying for your costs. And they have to have costs running these servers and stuff. So these kind of like seamless experience are extremely key. And you want that people who come later to the space also have the feeling, okay, I still can be part of this uh, equally without I have to go to a, an exchange and just like drive the price up because I wanted to buy a bigger chunk, you know? So we basically have uh, looks available for selling them over a long time. And at the same time, we as founders give ourselves 2.5% of the network between four people, which is reasonable low if you compare this to probably any other project, because we believe that this will be a very big network and nobody can own a 10 or 20% of this. Uh, so it has to be fair distributed between all, between the early uh, participants, obviously between the founders and as well as people come later. So basically making this and distributing as much as possible and making it as equal and interesting for each participant and each stage is, in my opinion, very key. Um, the other key is obviously uh, using the right technology. And obviously we are basing this on the EVM. This is an EVM-based blockchain. It has a different consensus algorithm like Ethereum, but it's fully compatible to Ethereum. We are planning on uh, taking every upgrade Ethereum brings because this will take it makes it extremely easy for people to either deploy this on Ethereum, on Luxo, or to whatever other EVM-based blockchains out there. And if you're belonging to the fashion and uh, lifestyle space or have any kind of use case in this direction, you obviously will use Luxo because that will probably make more sense for you. While at the same time, you don't have to learn anything new. You don't have to use different tools. You don't have to like you know uh, find a tutorial of like one guy who made one up because everything will be co totally compatible. And the, the immediate future is basically our private sale right now, the public ICO, uh, starting the public test network, which we actually will do very soon. Um, the, the ICO takes a lot of legal and a lot of regulatory involvement. And I want to do this in a very fair way called a reversible ICO. That's a another concept which I think would be very important for the blockchain space because it allows 
or it makes ICOs fair by design and regulated on-chain by basically locking money into a smart contract and giving it to us as a project over time rather than immediately and giving every investor the ability to pull his money back out. Minus which went to the project and this is purely time-based. So there's no voting, nothing. It's purely a time-based flow. Um, that would be probably a whole podcast <laughs> discussion. Yeah, itself. it might have to be. I mean, I, I, I could see bringing you guys on again, you know, when, when, you, when you've moved further down the process, when you've thought about all these things, I'm sure we would revisit this conversation and think to ourselves, man, like, look at all the ways we didn't think <laughs> things were going to go. That tends to be how it, how it happens. But I really appreciate the uh, the way that you're approaching all of this fr- from again from the unglamorous side of just like driving hard on, on forming these standards because you believe in you know creating value through scale and through you know adoption at scale and and consistency and extensibility um, you know but then also having these very particular visions about verticals right you know th- being specific and being general and balancing it all together creating something like Luxo I'm going to be watching very carefully to see what you guys create and if any of the listeners want to be following what you're currently working on where can they go to continue following you following luxo following uh, any of the standards you've worked on what, what's the best place for them to go i mean you can go to uh, luxo.network l-u-k-s-o.network you can follow me on twitter it's at fandura um you can follow us on twitter as well it's luxo underscore io the standards are in the EIP repository in Ethereum. I think if you Google my name, you will find a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, I, I, maybe I'll just embed a link to, to a Google search for your name in the podcast description. But I'll add all the other links as well. People can, can read as much as they want and hopefully work with you and work with all these standards and issue their own tokens and, and think about all these mechanics. I, I can't wait to see uh, what people continue to create. So, uh, Fabian... Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It was a pleasure for me. I hope it was enjoyable for you as well. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was a great time. And uh, let's, uh, let's continue this at some point. Of course. 